It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Reds, your daily Cincinnati Reds podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Reds fans? My name is Jeff Carr, and you are Locked on Reds. And here we go. What's up, Reds fans, and welcome into the Locked on Reds podcast. Happy 4th of July. This is a special extended episode for you for the holiday weekend. There will be no Friday episode. This kind of encompasses Thursday and Friday for the 4th of July, but welcome into the show. Got a jam-packed long show for you. Gonna recap the Reds win over the Brewers on Wednesday night and I have a awesome conversation on tap with Tom Nichols. We get into a lot of stories, just memories that he's got. He's called over 4,000 games in his career, so he I, I really didn't even have to do very much. I said a couple of words, and he just went. It's, it's a great conversation. You're going to enjoy it. But before we get to that, make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast on every podcasting platform you can think of, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and the Himalaya Podcasting app. It's the easiest way to get this podcast each and every day into your podcasting queue. And also hit us up on Twitter, at LockedOnReds and at Jeff Carr with three Fs. And then check out the website, LockedOnReds.com. Got some great content going up there. Dave Pemberton with an article talking about the Reds building a, win- building a winning culture. And also Mike Martis with his debut talking about if he were the commissioner, what would he change about Major League Baseball to make it better? Definitely go check that out, LockedOnReds.com. And hit us up on the LockedOnReds line, 513-549-0159. Real quick before we get to the conversation with Tom Nichols, wanted to look at Wednesday night's game. And if you couldn't tell by the theme of today's episode, it was a very sunny game in Cincinnati. Yeah, I know it's always sunny in Philadelphia is the actual theme and and we're not in Philadelphia, we're in Cincinnati. But Sunny Gray had a day. 8 innings, shutout ball, only gave up a couple of hits and he had 12 strikeouts. He tied a career high and strikeouts with 12. He, If you were at the ballpark, he gave you free pizza by himself. So go have a pizza from La Rosa's and thank Sonny Gray for that pizza. It was always sunny at Great American Ballpark. And then Yasiel Puig scored or was the reason that the Reds scored all three of their runs. He hit a solo home run to give them their first one. He scored the second run, and then he hit a sack fly for the third one. You want to talk about a dude that's on fire? It's Yasiel Puig. He's finally coming around. Everyone was waiting. You know, they saw that minuscule batting average, and they're like, when is he coming around? When are we going to see the fireworks that we were promised? They're here. He's doing well. And I got the chance, you know, I talked with Tom Nichols last night. I also got the chance to watch the Dragons game. The Dragons themselves had a nice night. 
They won four to two. Ricky Salinas pitched for the Dragons. He's kind of been their best pitcher this summer. He had a pretty decent outing. He had to work around four walks, but he was able to strike out four as well, and he only gave up one run on five innings. And Michael Ciani had a pretty nice day. He left early after a collision at first base with the first baseman for Bowling Green. It was kind of one of those weird plays, but I think he's okay. I think it was just precautionary that they pulled him from the game. But I'm telling you what, the more and more I watch him, I've gotten a chance to watch him a handful of times this summer. I think he's going to be something special. I mean, I'm not saying that he's going to be like the next big thing for the Reds, but I think he's going to be a pretty decent major leaguer. Might have... Might have Doug Gray on here soon and maybe ask him what he thinks about Michael Ciani, because he would know more about that minor league stuff than I do, but I, I like what I've seen from the kid here up in Dayton. And, you know, as we know, Dayton is kind of the beginning of a player's journey through the minor leagues, so what he looks like in Dayton could be something completely different by the time he gets to Cincinnati. I mean, in fact, Billy Hamilton stole 100 bases whenever he played for Dayton. And not to say that he wasn't stealing bases for the Reds, but I don't know. I just feel like that kind of skewed our thinking of how good Billy Hamilton ended up being. But that's okay. I love Billy Miss him. Glad he's uh, out there in Kansas City playing for the Royals still. Anyway, got way off track there. So that was the night for the Reds, and then the Dragons won as well. And that'll lead us in to the conversation with Tom Nichols. I really got into just a lot of memories with him. He's called over 4,000 games. Uh, there's still some more that I'd like to talk to him about. Hopefully get to talk to him again later on this season. But uh, absolutely great conversation. Do want to give you a heads up, there is kind of a soundtrack behind us. Uh, there was a window right next to us, and I think there was a speaker that had some music playing, so you'll hear some wonderful tunes in the background as I talk to Tom, but doesn't uh, take too much away from the conversation, just uh, not the typical sterile environment that I get when I'm Skyping with people or stuff like that, but that's okay. I love meeting people where they're at, and it just so happened this was at the Fifth Third Field Press Box, so enjoy. We are here today. This is a special long episode of Locked on Reds, uh, holiday weekend episode, so to speak. I'm sitting here with Tom Nichols, the man who is overseeing all of Dragon's Baseball. I'm just kidding. He gets to do play-by-play each and every day. Tom, how are you doing, sir? Outstanding. Thanks for having me on today. I'm very happy to be talking with you. And the first thing I kind of wanted to lead in with, you have witnessed over 4,000 baseball games, like minor league, all all through all the levels, and including last season, uh, getting to do the Reds and Brewers game. But of those 4,000 games, is there one that sticks out the most? Good question. Um, maybe the very first one, perhaps. Um, we've had we've had some exciting ones over the years, no doubt about that. Um, time and date has been very good, but in all the cities I've worked in, I think there's been a game or a, a time there that was that was memorable. That's the one thing about baseball is, you, as soon as you pick a game that was the most memorable, uh, there might be a game two nights later that actually knocks that one off the top spot. So, uh, um, I, I've had I think I've had. Uh, memorable games every at every level that I've been at, and, and here in, in Dayton, we've certainly had uh, a lot of good ones, uh, from games that put us in the playoffs to 
Billy Hamilton's 100 stolen base to uh, a, a lot of other things. I think if you ask me to pick one game maybe that uh, for me was maybe the most dramatic, most exciting in the minor leagues, it would probably be the game when Jose Siri broke the league record for longest hitting streak in 2017. That was only two years ago, so over 32 years I'm giving you one from two years ago. Um, but that was such a dramatic day, and the whole the whole hitting streak was so much fun. And then he got to the last day, and he had, uh, he had tied the, the record the night before. The record had held for 40 years in this league, and we had tracked down the previous record holder who had played in 1977 with a team that's no longer in existence and he was living in Florida. We had tracked him down, done a pregame interview with him that day and and uh, Jose Siri came out that game and he'd already tied the record so we knew he had the record tied so that, that was already in his back pocket but uh, he came out that night, didn't really have very many good at bats up until his final chance but he had been to his final chance before during the hitting streak and extended it so we didn't know that uh, it was necessarily going to end. And he came up the last time, and it was against a pitcher that uh, had just come to the ball game, and and uh, he did not look good on the first two swings at all. And <laughs> it looked like uh, you're thinking, there's no way he can hit this guy. He's swinging at sliders or a foot and a half out of the strike zone. And then the third pitch comes in, and he hits a hard ground ball between third and short in the left field and breaks the record that day. And so it was a... It was a, a really memorable, dramatic moment, and uh, that, that for me was one of the most memorable. I, like I said, the very first game, going all the way back to 1988, I'm not sure I could top that one because I didn't have any guarantee there was going to be a second game. <laughs> and when the first game came along, it wasn't like they hired me for the year. They said, we've got a game for you, and there was no promises of, of any more. And, and uh, so when, when uh, Howard Kelman, the voice of the Indianapolis Indians, came in, in the night and, and had a calendar and said, okay, we've got more games for you. Here's what we've got. And uh, that was, that was a, great, a, a great moment for me, for sure. And uh, so those are some of the things that come to mind. That's awesome. It leads me to wonder, and I mean, I know why for me to cover it each and every day, but why baseball? Why do play-by-play -play for baseball? Well, you know, I, I think like most broadcasters, you, you were a fan at one point. And for me, um, I guess baseball was probably the sport that I was most knowledgeable in. It was the sport I had played the most. It was a, a sport that my family had, had been most involved in. My dad had played the most and sort of introduced me to the, 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 the closest. And so I knew the game itself better than any other game. I think some broadcasters probably get into baseball after doing other sports, and baseball's another sport, so they do it. And I did the other sports too, but for me, baseball was the main sport. And 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 uh, growing up as a fan of the Big Red Machine, uh, it became the sport that you were the most connected to as a fan because of the Big Red Machine, and there was just no way to match that. And so from that perspective, uh, baseball was the sport now. Getting into the game itself was, was not an easy thing, and people ask all the time now, young broadcasters, how do I get into baseball? And it's different now than it was then probably, but um, you did everything you could just try to break in the front door and get a chance. And so uh, fortunately for me, it's been a case of over a long career, I've been able to maintain a, an opportunity each day to come to work and, and call baseball. And done a little bit with the other sports too since I got into baseball but baseball's been the one that's that's been the career for me and uh, 
So one way or another, it worked out. So you mentioned that first game back in 88. How did that come about for you? Well, I made a decision to try to become a broadcaster, mainly from listening to Marty and Joe on WLW <laughs> as a kid and said, that's what I want to do. And, and I played the game all through school and into high school. And I knew that I wasn't going to be a, a major league player, a minor league player, that the career was going to come to an end. And so that was a way to stay involved in the game. And so I went to college, my radio station in high school, or high, I should say my high school had a radio station. And so I did, did work there, then went to, went to college at Ball State University, got a job throughout college, worked all four years of college at a commercial station or stations in the area. And uh, um, those commercial, those smaller commercial stations have kind of gone by the wayside a little bit. You just don't see as many around now and if they are around, they're automated or satellite program. In those days, you, you actually saw stations out doing high school games, football, basketball, baseball, and, and you could get some experience doing that. So I came out of college um, and actually made a call to the broadcaster of the, the closest minor league team, Indianapolis Indians, which was about, I guess, an hour and 20 minutes from my home, called the broadcaster there, my intention for making the call wasn't to get a job with them. It was just to find out how do I get a job with any minor league team. And I talked to him. He said, well, it's a little late for this year to get a job somewhere, but we do have some games available, maybe. Um, we have a – We do. They, they did every game on radio, home and road, and, and uh, they had a – a second broadcaster who was actually a member of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. And on nights where there was a concert, that was his main job. And I'm sure it was a, 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 a high-paying job for him. And the broadcasting for him was just sort of a fun thing to do on the side. And his name was Tom Akins. And uh, um, so he did games when he wasn't doing a concert. On the nights when they did concerts, they needed a in essence, a third person to come in and fill in, and that was where the openings were. So there were probably over the course of a season, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe 25 to 30 games that were available. And Howard Kelman, their main broadcaster, said to me, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to get a job. This was like February of 1988. He said, it's going to be hard to get a job this year in, in broadcasting full-time, but we do have these 25 or 30 games and I'll, and I'll give you a chance to do one game so if you can send a tape. So I, I sent him a tape, which in those days was a cassette tape, and he listened to it. And he said, okay, that's good enough. We'll give you a chance to come down here and do one game. We'll see how it goes. And like I said before, I did the one game. He came in at the end of the night and said, here's the rest of the schedule if you want it. And I said, do I want it? Of course I want it. So did that, went to the winter meetings, came back, did another year with Indianapolis, and then got my first full-time job. And it went from there. So I'm always thankful to Howard, uh, who I've stayed in touch with a little bit over the years. He's still the Indianapolis Indians broadcaster to this day. That was 1988. He was already there at that time for maybe 15 years. So he's been there forever. And uh, thankful to him for that first opportunity. And that got me in the business. Throughout all of those different games, everything, I mean, you've seen a few runs. You've seen a few outs. What's the craziest thing? And I, and I think like even this season with like a fan running out onto the field and hu hugging Cody Bellinger. Have you seen yeah. something like what's the craziest thing that comes to mind? 
I'd say, you know, we had a, we had a game in, uh, I think the year might have been the year 2000, so we're going back 19 years. Uh, the team I was broadcasting for at that time was in was, was the Mobile Bay Bears. They played in Hank Aaron Stadium in Mobile, Alabama. And we were playing the Chattanooga Lookouts, which was ironically the Reds affiliate. And, and then after a period where they were no longer with the Reds, they're now back with the Reds again. Uh, but this was, I think, the year 2000. And we had an ending to a game that night that was just um, uh, out, straight out of Hollywood. Uh, and, and first of all, we had a we had, we started the night with a this is again was night was uh, the year 2000. We started the night with a two-hour rain delay before he ever threw a, a pitch. Mm-hmm. And it was the last game of the series. Otherwise, they would probably call the game and made it up the next night as part of a doubleheader. But that was the last night we were playing them, so it's either get the game in or you're not going to play this game. No doubleheader the next night. And so we started the game about 9 o'clock and and, uh, got to a point where it was right around midnight, and they were up on us by three runs, ninth inning. And uh, we get to a point where the first two batters of the inning are retired, and it looks like it's already going to be an easy one, two, three inning. It's midnight. We've been there for hours, and, and uh, it's time to go home. And I uh, looked over in the booth next to me, and the, the Chattanooga broadcaster, Larry Ward, was already sort of, while he was announcing the game, same time he's packing up his media guides and his books, and he's getting ready to get on the bus and get out of there and because they're going somewhere just like we are that, that night after the game. And uh, so the next batter comes up, two outs, ninth inning. They're up on us, I think, maybe 5-2 to two was the score Chattanooga leading our club. And the next batter hits a uh, mile-high pop-up on the infield. It's going to end the game for sure. And uh, their shortstop was a guy named Wilmy Caceres. And he's camped under it, and it comes down, and it hits in his glove and pops straight out of his glove. (laughs) And uh, it's an error, and the game continues for another batter. So now you've got a, a man on base, two outs. They're still up on his three. And the next guy hits a uh, ground ball to the shortstop once again, so I'm already thinking game's over. And it's just a routine play, just like the previous play was before it. And uh, he fields it, throws the ball to first base, and the throw actually breaks the webbing of the first baseman's glove, <laughs> goes literally through his glove and comes out the other side, and the batter's safe. So now you've got um, two on, two out, Tying run is now coming to the plate, and Chattanooga makes a pitching change. They bring in their all-star closer, a guy named Bo Donaldson. And this is the last thing that I think some people wanted to see because it takes another couple minutes to get a new pitcher in. We've been there five hours. Everybody's ready to go. And you bring in Bo Donaldson to get the last out, and then we go. So this is just a basically about a two-minute delay that nobody, uh, on their side at least, was happy to see. And Bo Donaldson comes in. To face our five foot eight inch second baseman, and wouldn't you know, long drive to right field, it is gone. Three run home run, tie game. Nobody's going home. We're going to the bottom of the ninth inning. They didn't score in the bottom of the ninth, and we go on to extra innings. I still remember the thump I hear when John Powers, our second baseman, hits that. Three-run homer. It's a loud thump from the booth next door. It's the Chattanooga broadcaster pounding the countertop. 
He is not happy about the fact that this game is now going to continue on. And we go to extra innings. So we go on to the 10th inning, nobody scores. The 11th inning, nobody scores. Nowadays, that doesn't happen because you start the extra innings in minor league baseball with a free runner on second, which keeps you from going too many innings. But the game goes on and on and on. 11 innings, 12 innings, 13 innings, 14 innings, nobody scores. Both teams are totally out of players. And they load the bases against us in the bottom of the 14th inning, and they've got and the pitcher's spot is due up. They have no one to bat except the pitcher himself, and he's their last available guy and last available pitcher. Nobody to bat, so the pitcher goes up to bat for himself. Two outs, bottom of the 14th inning, tie game, bases loaded. Okay, so. He takes a swing. He hits this perfect, what would amount to a perfect swinging bunt toward third base. (laughs) And our third baseman comes charging in, and he sees he's got no chance, and he's not even going to pick the ball up. It's going to be an infield hit. The winning run's going to score, and the game's going to be over right there in 14 innings. Chattanooga's going to win the game in the bottom of the 14th on on an infield single by their pitcher, And as he's running to base, to first base, he pulls a hamstring, and he doesn't even run to first base. He just stops about halfway between home plate and first base. He doesn't even continue to the base. And our third baseman, like I said, he's not even going to field the ball and throw it to first. The game's going to be over. It's it's that slowly hit perfect bunt. He's playing deep. He runs in to pick the ball up. And he looks over and sees the pitchers halfway between home and first standing there holding his hamstring. So he picks the ball up, throws it to first base, out, we go to the 15th inning. (laughs) Now they're out of pitchers, and they're also out of position players. So what they end up doing is they put the next day's starter, who's not able to pitch that night, in right field. They put the right fielder in to pitch, and he cannot throw strikes to save his life. Walk. Walk, walk after walk. Doesn't even make it out of the inning. They have to end up putting their catcher in to pitch. And so they've now used two different position players to pitch. The right fielder's in, or the, the, pit, the next day starting pitcher's in right field, and he's playing about two steps off the line. He has no interest whatsoever in catching a fly ball. And we end up scoring about six runs, and, that's the, and, and, and they don't score in the bottom half of the 15th. And we win a game that we were out of, Like, I mean, totally done with three different times, and we end up winning the game. That was, without a doubt, the craziest ending to any game I'll ever ever see. That was 19 years ago. Never forget it. And uh, we get on the bus after the game last night. By now, it's like literally 2 a.m. when the game ends, which normally you can't play a game at 2 a.m. because there's a curfew. But last game of the series, when the team's traveling, they waived the curfew, so we played till like 2 a.m. and um, win the game, get on the bus, go to the next city, never anything like it. So that's my craziest ending to a game. Real quick, want to take a quick break to thank Hotels.com for sponsoring today's episode. Go over to Hotels.com for great rates and a reward system for your stay. Stop hate liking your friend's vacation and get out there. Go to the beach, go to the mountains, whatever. Hotels.com. 
We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. Now, as far as your question about like crazy events on the field, I'm sure there, if I thought for a few minutes, I could come up with one, but that, that one was uh, one I'll never forget is the craziest ending to a game ever. And I, I've, I've seen over the years a couple of guys who are now coaches that were in that game and I remind them of that game and they just sit there and smile as I, as I run through some of the details that they've forgotten. And, and anybody that was on the field that night won't forget it. That's awesome. If they weren't called the Bay Bears, I would have said that's Angels in the Outfield. Yeah, part two. Right, no doubt. It was it was just that game, that game that couldn't happen, but it did happen. That's all right. Well, I will say that um, I appreciate all the different stories and stuff. All of the guys that you've seen over the years, who are the most memorable players? It didn't necessarily have to be the best guys, but the guys that you remember the most. Well, over 32 years, it's hard to, it's really hard to pick out one or two. Um, one of my stories that I like to, I like to tell um, of a player that I remember who probably was the most unlikely player to get to the major leagues, um, I think the year might have been about 2002. I might be off by one year on that one. Um, we had a reliever when I was in Mobile, a relief pitcher. Uh, his name was J.J. Trujillo, and he, had, he was from uh, Texas. He was, I think, from maybe, uh, I think he was from Corpus Christi, Texas. And he had gone to um, uh, college baseball and was a walk-on for his college team. And he walked on as like a, a combination um, second baseman and relief pitcher for an NAIA team. It was... Uh, now, the school he went to is now a Division I team, and they're actually a pretty good one, Dallas Baptist University. Mm-hmm. But at that time, when he played there, they were an NAIA team. So imagine a walk-on for an NAIA team that's a pitcher-slash-second baseman and ask yourself, what are the chances that that guy ever plays in the major leagues? And he was about, I'm not sure how tall J.J. was, but he was not a very big guy at all. He did not have the physical build that anyone would look at and say, that guy's going to be a pitcher someday. He's going to be a major league pitcher. He would be a guy that you would look at and say, that, that guy has no chance of ever being a major league player. He just wasn't born with the, the, the physical build to be a major league athlete. And so he, has a, he becomes a pitcher at Dallas Baptist and is a, um, a guy that has a very good career at Dallas Baptist. And a good enough career, in fact, in an NAI school that he gets an invitation to try out for an independent team in the, um, I think it was in the Frontier League. The te- I think the team, and I'm, some of these things I'm going off of memory here, so I might be slightly off if somebody went back and fact-checked me because I haven't, I haven't gone back. I'm going off of memory here. I think the name of the team was the... Johnstown Johnnies, and they were in Johnstown, <laughs> Pennsylvania, an independent league team. And he goes there, and he pitches for one year, and is just unbelievably successful as a closer. 
And at that time, the San Diego Padres, their general managers was the late Kevin Towers, and they signed a lot of players out of independent ball, um, something I'd like to see the Reds do because it would help the Dragons quite a bit. Um, and they signed a lot of guys out of independent ball. And uh, they, so they took a look at this relief pitcher who, again, you looked at him physically, wasn't a very big guy. You'd say, how can that guy throw a baseball 90 miles an hour? And, well, J.J. developed this submarine-style delivery that nobody could hit. And he threw hard enough. It was just a quirky delivery from down under, and nobody had seen a delivery quite like that. And he threw uh, 90 miles an hour from from, uh, uh, a submarine-style delivery, which the speed was average, but when you combine that with the angle of his arm, Right-handed hitters just could not hit him. And lefties didn't hit him very well either, but right-handed hitters had no chance. And so after a year of dominating independent ball, the Padres sign him, and they send him on to his first year of minor league baseball in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So he goes there, and again, he's a total nobody. And he, and he sets the league record. In fact, he, he establishes what I believe at that time and I could go back and look this up if you fact check me. I think I'm pretty close on this. I think it was the third highest save total in the history of organized professional baseball. He had like 42 saves that year, which at that time in the minor leagues, you play 140 game season. I think it was like the third highest total in minor league baseball history. So, the, so that's his year in Fort Wayne. So the next year he moves up. And he plays for our team, the double-A team, um, in uh, Mobile, Alabama. And he finishes that year with us. And uh, then the the following season, he's our closer in double-A. And, again, just off the charts as far as success. His ERA, I think, was 0.62 maybe. (laughs) And... um, so the Reds late the I mean the Reds I'm I'm sorry I'm still thinking Reds the Padres were our parent club at that time in Mobile, and they call him up, and uh, he goes to the big leagues and this is like something nobody expected to have happen. He goes to the big leagues and they're in I think it was Baltimore that day he called him up, and they play an afternoon game in Baltimore against the Orioles and he's called up that same day so he's traveling all day flies into Baltimore, excuse me, there's no direct flight from Mobile to Baltimore, so he's got some connection somewhere, and they're playing a day game. So he arrives at the ballpark, and I I remember that all of his equipment didn't get there with him. He didn't even have his baseball shoes at the game with him that day, so he has to borrow somebody else's shoes. Hopefully they're the same size, not having any expectation whatsoever of getting in the game. And... He goes to the game that day, and the game goes again. They go extra innings, and they get to like the 14th inning. Maybe it was, I think actually it was the 12th inning, and they're out of pitching. And here's J.J. on the active roster officially, and they don't have anybody else to pitch. He's been traveling all day, no baseball shoes, borrows somebody's shoes, and they put him in the game with men on base in the – Bottom of the 12th inning to face uh, the Orioles. And I, I'm trying to remember who the hitter was, and it's not coming to me right now. But it was a pretty good home run hitter. Um, and um, so he goes out there, and he throws first pitch, and it's a J.J. Trujillo uh, uh, submarine slider, swing and a miss. 
and he throws another pitch, swing and a miss. And now he's 0-2 with this guy, and he's thinking to himself, and I talked to him about it later, he's going to strike him out. He's going to strike out the first batter he ever faces, be the hero, and he throws a slider, and he told me it was the worst slider he's ever thrown in his life, just a hanger (laughs) right over the middle, belt high. He said any double-A hitter would have hit that ball a mile, and that's exactly what the major league hitter did. He hit the ball out of the ballpark, walk-off home run, instead of being the hero, J.J. is the GOAT. He gives up a home run to the only battery faces. A few days later, he's back in the minor leagues, never got there again. But you know what? He got to the big leagues, a guy that no one thought would get there, a guy that was a walk-on for an NAIA program, went to an independent league in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, got to the big leagues. Best story I've ever heard as far as a Cinderella story, guy that got there that nobody thought would. That's my favorite story of, of, a, of a player that got to the big leagues that nobody thought had a chance, and it happened. And I think the year, again, was maybe 2002. You could go back on, like, baseballreference.com and look all this up, and the numbers are going to be pretty close to what I gave you, maybe off by a little bit somewhere, but look it up. I, I, I invite you to because it's all there. J.J. Trujillo was his name. I'm definitely going to remember that. All right. That's awesome. All right. Well, hey, we got to get wrapped up here. I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Uh, do got three quick things. Okay. Real, real, All right. going to call them quick pitches. Okay. Dodger dog or dragon dog? Well. I tried it the other day. It's got like sriracha yeah. and a bunch of spicy stuff on it. It's actually pretty good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave that one up to you. I uh, okay. <laughs> I I I have not actually been able to try either of those. So maybe I'll try it tonight. All right. All right. Um, when it comes to baseball uniforms, uh, pants down to the shoes, knee highs, or stirrups. Okay, I'm old school, man. I'm old school all the way. So I am gonna go with um, the uh, the pants just below the knee and the socks all the way up and uh, look old school and play the game and get the uniform dirty. So that would be my first choice. Worst choice would be the pants all the way down to the top of the shoes, but that's actually the majority of guys now. So if anybody wears it that way, don't take offense. That's just my own personal feeling, and uh, anybody's uh, certainly uh, fair to do it the way they they feel like's uh, the best for them. That's all right, and I must have been hungry when I wrote these, but ketchup on a hot dog, yes or no? I'm going most mustard, no ketchup. Yes. All yeah, right. That's the right. All right, Tom, I all really right. appreciate your time. All right, thank sure. you. Thank you very much, and, and have a great day, Jeff. I really enjoyed talking with Tom. I'm hoping to get him on the podcast again later on this season. We're just going to keep on talking about good old stories. I mean, that that was a lot of fun. I don't know about you, but I had a lot of fun in that conversation. Real quick, I want to take a look at the series, really the series finale with the Brewers here on the 4th of July that Luis Castillo is on the mound. Now, I know that we keep assigning like different meanings to Castillo's starts. It's like, well, this is the start he needs to prove that he is ace material. But I'm telling you what. This is the kind of game that you got him on the mound. The Reds have won two of the last three against the Brewers. This is game four of a four-game set. If they take this game, the Reds as a whole are going to start feeling real good. And us Reds fans are just going to go crazy. I mean, I don't know about you, but if we take three of four from the first-place Brewers, that is awesome. And then we go into the weekend series, just a two-game set, to finish the Ohio Cup. The Reds and the Indians are tied at one apiece. 
as they've only played two games, and they've only got two more games. We'll see how that ends up. And it's funny because it brings up a little bit of a topic that I heard on the Red Reporter podcast. And, and there was a little bit of a discussion about it on Twitter. They brought up the idea of the Reds trading for Francisco Lindor, the Cleveland Indians shortstop. Just in case you didn't know who he was, he's probably one of the you know, three best shortstops in the game, if not one of the five best players in the game. And and the Indians have stated in different, you know, there's there's different Indians officials that have stated in interviews before that he better be, you know, better enjoy his time while he has it because he's not getting another contract with the Indians. You know, that's paraphrasing. That's not exactly what they said. That sounds a little ridiculous. But the interesting thing would be, what would the Reds have to give up to get him? Because it would have to be a lot. Like I mentioned, he is without question one of the best players in the game. But if the Indians are looking at rebuilding, and I don't know, maybe I'll talk to James Rapine about this one day or something. But if the Indians are look at re- if the Indians are looking to rebuild, that's the guy you start with because you 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 trade Francisco Lindor and you can bring in a haul that not only sets you up for the future, but could set you up for next year. I don't know. If I'm the Reds, I'm at least calling Cleveland to see if Lindor is available. And Lindor actually has two more years past this year. So not only do you get him for the rest of this year, but you also get him for 2020 and 2021, and you open up a world of possibilities, then maybe you do extend Yasiel Puig and you do have a lineup that is nutso and it really doesn't matter who starts at catcher as long as they're defensively competent because then you can just hide them at the bottom of the lineup and the rest of the lineup is loaded. I don't know. I got really excited whenever I heard Wick and the guys on the Reds Reporter podcast talking about that. That was, that was a lot of fun to think about there. Uh, and if you haven't checked out the Red Reporter podcast, check them out. It's a weekly, I think it's weekly, bi-weekly, something like that. But a lot of great content going on over there. Anyway, that is going to wrap us up. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to today's show. A happy 4th of July to you all, and big thank you to our uh, servicemen and women that have sacrificed their lives for our country. Thank you so much. And remember that the 4th of July is not just about Will Smith saving us from the aliens. It's also about the founding fathers and everything that makes our country great. So go out, celebrate, eat a hot dog, watch some fireworks, and watch some Reds baseball. Hopefully they finish up this series with the Brewers with a win with Luis Castillo on the mound. That's going to do it for us for this week on the Locked On Reds podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening. Make sure that you are subscribed on all major podcasting platforms. Hit us up on Twitter and hit us up on the Locked On Reds line, 513-549-0159. Hope you all have a great holiday weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. My name is Jeff Carr. This is the Locked On Reds podcast. Go Reds. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.